Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things that the community has asked us for is helping connecting them with like-minded faith-driven investors. We're in the process of launching Marketplace, a new platform to present your venture and connect with like-minded investors that are serious about honoring God as you are. Everything from philanthropic to market rate deals, from here in the U.S. to emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. Look, when we hire someone, that is the only question that matters to me. It's, look, this company is currently in process. It is currently broken. It is currently not enough. And at the same time, it is amazing. It is remarkable. It is blessed. Right. So know that that's what you're joining. Right. And then what I want to know from the person is how will working here help you become who you're hoping to become? Because you are beautiful. You are blessed. You are remarkable. And also you are in process. You have yet to be redeemed. You are broken in ways. Right. And so tell me about those places. Tell me how if you work here for a week or for 30 years. You're going to grow as a human being because you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, today, Henry and William and myself, Rusty, we're going to interview someone who runs a restaurant in Seattle. The restaurant's name is Canlis. And Food and Wine Magazine once called Canlis one of the 40 most important restaurants in the past 40 years. They've humbly received 22 consecutive Wine Spectator Grand Awards and have been nominated, get this, 15 times for a James Beard Award, and they've won three of them. Mark Candless is our guest today. He's not only going to talk to us about his restaurant business, he's going to talk about the creativity and the necessity of the things that they've had to do during this time but more importantly, he's going to share with us the values and principles that come from his faith that shape the way he leads his business, a business he dearly loves. Henry, all yours. Mark, we're excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be here. We love the Canlis story. It's great for me to hear for the first time, really, I guess three or four months ago, but it's one that's been going on for more than a century and love to hear about the Canlis story. And we want to get into that. But first, I want to give our listeners a bit of your personal background. You grew up in a restaurant family. So it seems that the restaurant business is in your blood and you're also captain of the Air Force. Walk us through a bit of who you are that brings us through to today. And then we'll get back into maybe the older family business. Oh, man. Maybe it's more of an unlikely story than you'd think. I got a couple of brothers. We all grew up in the restaurant business. Uh, we're fourth generation or third generation restaurateurs, depending where you start that story. And none of us thought we'd do this. We didn't at all think that we'd go into the business despite the legacy attached to it. But two of us are doing it. So here we are. And yeah, like you said, it's been, if you include our great grandparents, been since 1910 that we're going to run in restaurants. And so I went away for school for a bit, ended up in the military for a bit, and then got out and came back this way and was working with my mom and dad. And they very kindly and humbly said, 
Maybe you should go get your brother. I think he'd really help your situation. I was having a hard time in the company. And sure enough, bringing Brian on board was a real help to us, uh, to me personally, and to the business as well. So uh, that was back in 2003. So we've been doing it together as brothers for 15 years or 20, whatever that is, 17, 18 years now. So what do you got going now? Walk us through. The, the I'm not sure I have a restaurant. Right I'm not sure what business I'm in right now. Um, right. But uh, so, you know, in pre-pandemic time, we ran a fine dining restaurant here in Seattle. It was the finest 70th year. It was a dinner only spot. And as y'all know, Seattle sort of brought the pandemic to the United States. We got it first and early on decided to close the restaurant and see if we couldn't creatively come up with ways to keep everybody employed. So we're just a family spot. We got 110 employees. That's a lot of folks though, when you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants and yeah. Uh, we are 18 or 19 weeks into this pandemic and haven't had to let anyone off just yet. So you're finding us right now. Today, we're opening a restaurant in our parking lot, for example, but you're finding us six or seven projects into, you know, creating a need out of a company that wasn't needed. I mean, fine dining is not exactly what you want when we're all social distancing and paying attention to health and germs and new ways. And so we just decided to do something else. So I really want to get into that. I think that's what is particularly unique and obviously one of the reasons we want to have you on about the way that you as an entrepreneur are dealing with this challenge, but also this very real opportunity. Before we get there, though, I'm fascinated. I love multi-generational businesses. And you talk about everybody on this program that's listening, loves food. We love a longer story. 1910, first Canlis restaurant opens. What's the story behind that? Is there also, by the way, for more than 100 years, is there like a family recipe that has kind of like been shepherded through the generations? Tell us about that first restaurant, though. Sure. Um, my great-grandparents, Nicholas and Susan, he was from Greece. He was a mm -hmm. runaway. Ends up, we think, hopping on a fishing boat from Greece to Turkey. He swam in the rest of the way, as the family legend has it. And he finds his way to Cairo. And President Teddy Roosevelt had just sort of finished up his presidency and was heading out on a safari. I guess the way you did back then. And he hired a bunch of folks. So my great grandfather was working at the Mina house, a hotel that's still there in Cairo. They met and when he was hired on as a cook or a steward, we're not entirely sure what was going on. Um, my great grandmother was Lebanese, an amazing cook, just a real talent. And I don't remember him, but I remember her quite vividly. And mm. a lot of the sentiment of this restaurant came from her. Anyway, they meet. At some point, that safari would end and they kind of immigrate into the States. So he's it, but so just to get this right, your great grandfather is like on safari with Teddy Roosevelt, like into like Botswana and like on big game hunting and killing lions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Roosevelt went over there under the auspices of science, you know, collecting flora and fauna, I think. Uh -huh. um, there's also, I think, just a lot of a little R&R &R, having finished up a difficult job. And so, yeah, they were over there, I think, for a year and a half. He had a huge crew and they brought a lot of that stuff back a lot of taxidermied stuff in the natural museum of history in the upper west side of new york city that yeah. kind of showcases some of it but anyway yeah so they were i don't know they were eating probably big game but that's what they were cooking back then that's not really a tradition we've held on to here but they would open a restaurant in stockton california called the fish grotto and seafood palace it's a name we kind of have to leave in the past but it was a mom and pop shop it was they had four kids and they all were raised in it and one of them was my grandfather and he very much wanted to do his own thing he was kind of a first generation immigrant with a chip on his shoulder and he wanted to make a name for himself in fine dining so 
because of Pearl Harbor, he was in Hawaii. And because of all that, like a lot of folks went to go help out at the base after the bombing and whatnot, and would find his way into food service there. And he ended up running most of the food service there for the USO. During the war and after that, just opened a restaurant in Hawaii, because it kind of made sense. So that was the first one called The Broiler. That was 1947. And then he came here to Seattle and opened Canlos in 1950. So he ran it till he passed away and my parents ran it for 30 years and now my brother and I are having a go at it. I'm trying to do a hundred years as fast as I possibly can. But yeah, so, so you did it too fast. So I'm gonna slow you down toward the end. So we'll do the most recent generation, your parents. Um, your parents shepherd the Canlis restaurant for 30 years. Talk about some of the lessons you learned about the business from them. And maybe not just the lessons about the business, but just what was it that they did that impacted the way that you run Canlis today and the way that you think about your life? Yeah, let's not disassociate business lessons from family lessons. There's no separation between church and state on those. It's not over here. So the most important thing they did was to raise us in a loving home. And I don't say that sort of flippantly or like, oh, shucks, thinking sentimentally about my parents. I think that's the most cutting edge and strategic thing you could ever do for your children. We had meals together on the table. The family came first before the business and everyone knew it. And just for the business minded people out there, the business suffered. Plain and simple. You want to run a company, put your company first. It'll help the company, but it won't help the family. So I think the most important thing that dad did was he shrank the company, which might be antithetical to most business people's instincts, but a dear board member said to him, Chris, I've known you a lot of years. You're not the kind of guy who can run three restaurants in three cities and stay married and raise three children and have it all work. So choose something that's not going to work and focus on the others. So dad sold a couple of restaurants. He ended up just with this one in Seattle. He and mom celebrate 50 years married next year and near as I can tell, we all love them still. So that's a business lesson is what I'm trying to tell you, particularly in generational transfer. There's a really important lesson there to be learned about having your priorities straight. And that is maybe the thing that has guided us the truest over all these years. It's just sort of keeping our priorities straight. So that notwithstanding, we were raised with a lot of freedom, but also high standards. And I don't think there needs to be a separation between those two things. And we run the company today with that same mindset. There's a lot of love in this company, but that is not a compromise to the excellence and to the precision and to the high standards with which we operate. And in fact, just the opposite. That's an expectation. The expectation is not that you're gonna impress me with your performance. The expectation is that you're the best of the best. That doesn't impress me. We hired you because we thought you were the best. What impresses me is who you're growing into, who you're becoming as a woman or as a man. What kind of human being are you? Talk to me about your character development while you're doing the very best job you can. And so that's just the way we were raised as kids and that's the way we treat our staff. And I think that's probably also set us on a good course over the years. You know, I think it's fair for our listeners to understand only 19%, less than 20% of generational transfer of businesses actually succeed. So you're in rare percentage. So they say in restaurants, it's significantly lower than that. That's somewhere think so. in the uh, 5 to 6% range. We could talk about generational transfer for hours. But I think maybe the one thing to mention on that is that and this is true, I think, of a lot of what we do in business. It's the holding of two truths at the same time, 
or maybe we'll say it's keeping things in tension that allows you to transfer from one generation to the next. And so the two truths are mom and dad have incredible value. What they did in this company is unprecedented. They were the gold standard in many ways for best practices and that kind of thing. That's true. Another truth is they're not the best team to take it into the next generation. There's a story that says something like, Brian and I are young and inexperienced, don't know what we're doing, but also have the creativity, have the tenacity, have the loyalty, have the values, which are pillars that we can stand on as we move the thing forward. And a lot of companies, I think, just trip up on those things. It's hard for the one generation to let go with the right amount of let go. It's hard for the next generation to take over with the right amount of takeover. If you envision maybe two runners running a relay race, Think of those runners being off in their speed. You know, we saw that in the Olympics a few years back, right? So if the one in back is too fast, he runs over the one in front. If the one in front is too slow or too fast, right? That's a really delicate thing. And that's what's happening between generations is there's this incredible uh, dance that happens where you got to get everyone moving the same speed. And that's not easy to do. It also takes a lot of years. We worked for 10 years on transferring between generations. So, and that's a real privilege to be able to do that. You know, my grandfather passed away, so dad just kind of had it all of a sudden thrown on his lap. But when you have that strength, that sort of family strength of multiple generations investing in, pouring into, uh, that's just like an incredible resource. No different than raising children. You can do it as a single parent. Uh, I think it's easier to do with two parents. I think it's easier to do with two parents and a couple of grandparents, right? So I think of this as a real asset and having multiple generations involved in the company. You know, to stay with your metaphor there of the relay race, right? <laughs> the person who's going to receive the baton can't leave too early. Yeah. Right. And can't ask for it. Exactly. So they have to wait for the one behind them. Take that into maybe your experience of when you modernized the restaurant, modernized the business. So that isn't a mark on a timeline. The modernization of Canlis, I think is a bit of a misnomer. You know, when Brian and I came in, there was a lot of national attention and that's just because there's newness going on. And a lot of that attention focused on the things that we were doing inside the company. And, but we didn't start that and we won't finish it. So I believe that a business is always changing, always growing, always modern, no different than you and I, right? So, you know, you meet that guy who's like 50 and he's still wearing his letterman jacket from high school. And you're like, bro, like move on, man. Like you're not that person anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's cool. Like maybe hang are, on. Are you talking to Henry? You're talking to Henry. <laughs> <laughs> I might be. I don't know. He's not wearing one right now. But, you know, it's what you're seeing there is someone who did not allow themselves to be changed by time. They chose a moment in time that was special to them and they clutched it. They held on to it and they wouldn't let it go. And there's something inside of us that knows that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those glory years of what you did in high school or college or at any moment in time, but we have to embrace today. We have to let go of yesterday. We have to prepare ourselves for tomorrow. And so if we're doing that personally, why would we not do that with our companies? Does that make sense? So that's what's been happening all along. Our role as owners of this company is to be shepherding what is Canlis? No different than Justin, or William, or Rusty. What you guys are doing is say, who am I today? And you look around the world and you say, wow, that's what the world is out there. What does that mean for me? How do I need to change? How do I need to grow? So we're doing that in here. That's what I think makes us healthy and holistic folks. And we got to have that same process for our company. You got to be willing to look at something and say, that is no longer good enough. 
this needs to change, that feels tired. And so, yeah, we did a lot of that stuff in our own way, in, in our own time, but mom and dad did it and our grandfather was doing it. It was never, people think of a restaurant as like, oh, you get together the chef and come up with a bunch of recipes and as soon as you figure out, poof, it's done. It's not software. You don't figure it out and release it to the masses for download, right? It's something that is changing night by night by night by night by night. So I really liken the process of this company to the same one that we're going through personally. And look, when we hire someone, that is the only question that matters to me. It's look, this company is currently in process. It is currently broken. It is currently not enough. And at the same time, it is amazing. It is remarkable. It is blessed, right? So know that that's what you're joining, right? And then what I want to know from the person is how will working here help you become who you're hoping to become? Because you are beautiful. You are blessed. You are remarkable. And also you are in process. You have yet to be redeemed. You are broken in ways, right? And so tell me about those places. Tell me how if you work here for a week or for 30 years, you're going to grow as a human being because you're here. That's what I want to know. And we line those things up from the very beginning when we're hiring. And in that way, we're all going through the same process together. So I don't even know. I don't even know what the question was at this point. I'm just sort of like, <laughs> get off my soapbox. And we can just... It doesn't matter. That was a great answer. All right. It's cool. Like, what are we talking about right now? We're pretty loose. With... About, about how we treat people. We're pretty loose with structure around here. Our audience is very accustomed to this. Excellent. Mark, this is William here. So great to have you on. I was telling you right before we started, I got to see you and your other brother, the black sheep, the uh, the pastor brother that said, you know, restaurants aren't for me at a conference, gosh, three years ago. And seeing you guys together was just such a treat. And, and just listening to your story right now, and I remember some of these quotes, but also I don't remember others. And just to hear, you know, basically you eat your own dog food for lack of a bit. He's like, yeah, I can tell that you've continued to change things and continue to push forward. I do remember that interview question. And I want to highlight that, you know, how will working here help you become who you are trying to become? The remarkable thing about that question to me is imagine not asking. It. I know. And I don't say that in a pokey way at other people who hire. I'll poke myself. We used to not ask it. What does that say of us? So William, if I'm going to hire you yeah. and I never ask you that question, and for your three or for your five years here, we never go there. Do I care about you? <laughs> I don't know. And so I don't want to be the kind of guy that runs a company who all of their employees say, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really care about us. What matters is the mission of the company. Wow. I hope no one says that at my funeral. So this was like, we just came to this understanding of if we want people to speak well of us, we better be truly caring for them and about them from the outside, which means we need to design a company that does that. They can't be at odds with the company. It is the business to care for the people. Those two things are perfectly aligned. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And the question I hear, especially maybe in, in some bigger companies, but smaller too, is you see so many people leave and some version of their answer is, do I matter? And they've come to a place where they, they think they don't, right? And I bet a lot of people didn't know that, right? They didn't know, one, you don't ask, you don't know who someone's trying to become, and two, you definitely can't design something around it. Well, and we're groomed that way. We're in business school. There's this sort of understanding that you need to use one another to get ahead. We even call it the bottom line as if it was what mattered most. Mm -hmm. So we've done it to ourselves, right? We've said to ourselves, well, we all know what really matters is the bottom line. Well, if that's the case, 
on day one, you should look the new employee in the face and say, just so you know, you don't matter to me as much as profit. So when it comes time to choose, I'm going to choose money over you, this human being, right? People think that you have to do that. You don't have to do that. Actually, I would contest that Canlis is a 70-year hypothesis proving the opposite is true, mm. right? And there are many companies doing this, right? It's just that I don't know if we've done a good job inculcating the business culture with a truer version of how this could work. And so, um, at least around here, our goal aspirationally is to live into the values of the company. The values aren't things that you've accomplished. They're things that you're becoming. So I'm looking for people who are trustworthy and generous and other-centered. Those would be like the things that we live by. And our belief is that that makes us a better restaurant. It literally is a competitive advantage. So not only does it feel like the right thing to do for my soul, but there's the business brain of me that knows that that works as well. So it's really kind of a win-win. Amen. And I want to shift to this. I imagine this helped you during this time. I mean, we sit here in a crazy time, especially for the restaurant business, as we talked about briefly. I want to switch back to that. How did that culture impact where you are today? You had to shut down your restaurant. I know you've launched a couple of other things. Let our listeners into how your entrepreneurial spirit, and I assume how that culture of having a team that was already bonded together by this pivoted, for lack of a better word, but it's a big one our entrepreneurs use, to try to keep people employed, to try to continue to serve people, to try to continue to be high quality. Could you walk us through what you've done there? So we decided that employing people was most important. Keeping their healthcare, keeping a job and money coming in. You got to think this is back before. For example, we had to justify the use of the term social distancing when we did this. Not everyone had heard of that term. And people were like, wait, what? Why would you? How come? <laughs> this is before PPP. This is before all of this sort of. And so what we wanted to do was just Take a look around us and say, okay, sure, things are hard right now, but what do we have to be thankful for? What do we have? And maybe we're playing a game where all the rules just changed. And have we really allowed ourselves to think freely about that? Or are we operating in a mindset that is tired and no longer appropriate? And so we looked around and said, what are the new rules? It was literally as if you were playing a game of soccer and suddenly the referee blew the whistle for kicking the ball. It was like, what? I thought we were supposed to kick the ball, right? So we went and listed all of the rules. Like this is what it seems like business is about right now. And then given that set of parameters and given our resources, like, hey, we still have 100 employees. We have a kitchen that's on a really busy road. I wonder how we could operate. I wonder how we could play. What would be a good strategy for this new game, right? And so we just kind of started putting a bunch of ideas on the table and six or seven of them stuck, right? So the first one was to open up as a drive-through burger stand. You know, we're a fine dining restaurant on a busy road. No fine dining restaurant ever dreamed of being on a busy road. You want to be like in the middle of a vineyard or on some like remote island in Greece or something, right? You don't want to be on a freeway. That's not cool. Look at that thing, right? So we all like, I want the guests facing that way towards the mountain and the lakes and the city. But suddenly it was like, well, wait a second. Maybe this road is the greatest asset ever. What if we just, you can't get out of your car. You just pull up, you order a burger and we take it to you. And, you know, we have lines around the block. In fact, there was an hour and a half wait to get a burger. We served 1500 burgers in a couple of hours. So that proved to be a really popular idea. And 
from there, we opened a bagel shed. We happened to have a shipping container in our parking lot that has a bread oven and a flour mill. And we're like, all right, well, wait a second. That thing looks like a bakery. Like, what if we just invited people in? And one of our incredible employees was an amazing baker. And she's like, I make the best bagels. Let's just do bagels. So we opened the bagel shed. And, you know, that took an hour to get a bagel. Those things sold out just almost immediately. And then we were still cooking family meal. And we thought, well, if we can cook for the staff, we can cook for people down the street and I've got all these servers that need jobs and if they can take food from a kitchen to the table, then they can take the food from the kitchen to their car, to your house. Like why not just, so we created a delivery service. We've had some software written for us and just started cooking family meals for our neighbors and delivering them all over town. And that proved to be popular, you know, that was wait list of four or 500 people a night trying to get one of those. And then one of the employees was like, Hey, because we always say fine dining is the most considered form of dining. And they were like, well, what if we just played the piano in the dining room and live streamed it? Then when you're sitting at home, it open up your box of canvas to go. You could listen to the music. And then another employee was like, what if we put bingo cards in? And then you could play bingo with your kids if we live streamed a bingo show. So it just sort of rolled like that. And we built a piano live stream. Thousands of people around the world listened. We made a bingo show. And... A couple thousand people a night played bingo across the city. And it was an opportunity to bring in musicians and to have just like an encouraging word spoken out over the town. And the idea here, right, is like, I know times are hard right now, but if we can focus on what we can do, if we can still practice being thankful for, if we can do that old fashioned thing of count your blessings, if we can still gather around the table, maybe you've been quarantined around that damn table for the last four months, okay. But maybe you're quarantined with someone you love and you could say out loud, here's a toast to you who somehow got trapped with me in this tiny apartment for four straight months. Bless you for putting up with me. What if I could get all of Seattle to raise a toast or to laugh over playing a game of bingo or to listen to some piano music quietly? What if we can restore and say what's true about this time? One of the things that's hard, what's true, is that it's broken and hard and devastating and blah, blah, blah. Pick a headline up, read it out loud. That's true, most of it, right? The other thing that's true is we're still together. The other thing that's true is most of us are healthy. Most of us have incredible privilege if you're in this country. If, 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 if. What if we counted those things? And so we just did that as a company. And we just said to ourselves, what can we, we have a parking lot. Right now, inside dining is not cool. It's not safe. It isn't comfortable. It feels weird. A lot of restaurants don't have parking lots. So we just said, hey, what if we just built a restaurant in our parking lot? Like, awesome. <laughs> so that's what we're doing today, right? We're opening a crab shack. I've never run a crab shack before. I don't know what we're doing, but we're just gonna roll with it. So that's kind of what we did when this whole thing came in was just to sort of check ourselves. And I'm not saying to not read the headlines, but I bet you don't need to do it as much as we're doing it. And I think starting the day off with being thankful for what we have instead of complaining about what we don't. Again, it's important that we be aware of what's happening in the world. It's important we don't stick our head in the sand. 
You live in a unique city, lots of turmoil, and you're alluding to some of that. What does it look like to be a Christian in that environment? What are the opportunities to bear witness to your faith with gentleness and respect? How does it happen with your staff? How does it happen in the larger community? Seattle's not known for being a very church city, so you undoubtedly have some unique challenges. What does that look like? Um, I love this town. It is a remarkable place to live, and I feel privileged, blessed to be able to live here. It's not easy to be a Christian here necessarily, but you know what? You know, get over it. (laughs) It's not easy anywhere. So I'd rather focus on, uh, best to say, yep, this is a really liberal town and you take the good with the bad. Uh, We're doing some remarkably progressive things out here and I'm proud of the city for that. It's also a city that really, really wrestles with faith in a lot of ways. And I'm proud to be a part of that. You know, part of that wrestling has shaped me in ways that I needed. I used to live in the South. I love the South. And it was just a whole lot easier to go to church in the South because hell, the whole neighborhood was going, right? Like it was just a simple thing. And up here, you're like the only ones awake at eight in the morning on a Sunday. And by gosh, if you put a nice shirt on, people are like, what in the world is wrong with you? So it's a different deal. But I don't think when we talk about Christianity, we talk about faith right now, particularly in this unusual time, we were all in the exact same boat. I don't care where you live. We all have this opportunity now to do something remarkable. And maybe I can use hospitality or my own business to sort of illustrate that. When we talk about the hospitality business, this is one of the largest industries in the world. Mostly now we've reduced it to transactions. It's like, here, I'll give you what you want. You give me what I want. We'll go our separate ways. There's no relationship in a transaction. It's a deal. It's a brokering of a trade. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in the hospitality business, when that's all we do, we have cut the heart out of what the word actually means. So you look at ancient hospitality. We're talking about always the exchange of power and authority for someone who is vulnerable, right? I'm traveling down the road. And I'm a foreigner and I'm bearded and I'm stinky and I'm needy. I'm out of water. I'm out of shelter. I'm out of daylight, maybe. And maybe I'm out of food. I am in a place of need. And I'm not from your town, not from your tribe. I'm not of your people. I don't look like you. I probably don't believe you believe. I'm different. I am the other, capital O. I am the stranger. And I knock on your door, right? And you have an opportunity here. You're in your place of safety. You're in your place of strength. You're with your own people. You're in a place of power and I'm in a place of need. Hospitality was always an exchange of power for need. It was never something we did up here in our minds. It doesn't make sense. Logically, if you run, if you do the math, you should say no to me. You should turn me away. I'm dangerous. I'm a risk. It does not make sense to take me in. You are not prepared for me. You don't get anything out of the deal. I have nothing to offer you, right? Yeah. But in here, In our hearts, there is something that connects us, one human to the other human. I don't care where you're born on this planet. You open the door and you see that person and your heart breaks for them. Yeah. It's like, what? This isn't right. This can't be. And I'm not okay with this. Right? That's hospitality. And you override your mind with your heart and you say, screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. And now you got justified to your wife or your friends or your kids, you got to say, no, I know this doesn't make sense, but look at them. We can't let this happen. It's not okay. And so in this country, whether I don't care what state you live in, you're in that place. I don't care if the topic is Corona or racism 
or whatever else. Maybe you think that you believe something different religiously or politically. I don't care. The call here, all through the scriptures, is to open up to the stranger. We see it in the Old Testament nonstop. We see God say, look, fear me. Don't fear those other things out there. That was a hard world. You think it's hard right now because we've got a virus cruising around because politically and racially we haven't figured our stuff out? That's hard. I don't want to make that less hard than it is. It's hard. It's not as hard as what we were reading about in the scripture. Look, America didn't have to pack up and walk across the border to Canada. We're not a nomadic nation right now. We're not being attacked on all sides. We don't have plagues killing off people, right? It's hard, but that was also hard. So we have a beautiful model drawn out for us. And God is saying this in the Old Testament, look, it's hard out there. It's a scary world. Fear me. And so I feel that when I see someone who believes differently than me from a Christian perspective, or when I want to wear a mask and someone doesn't, or when I want to read a headline and it angers me because I feel differently, or from my little lens, I see the world differently. But I hear someone saying, Mark, don't fear what's different or other. Don't fear the stranger. Fear me. Right? And so that's what it is to be in business. That's what it is to be a restaurant. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to live in Seattle. We just need to stay focused on what we know. That's what it's like to be a Christian up here. So there's a lot in there. There's a beautiful answer. I think that there's coming back and saying the whole narrative in scripture and God's word is about overcoming adversity and fearing God and hospitality is woven into the very fabric of the message of taking care of the alien and the fact that we're welcomed into the house of God and we're invited in. And you're saying that that's something you're seeing. Undoubtedly, people that come across you and see something different about Canalis are saying, wait a second. These guys have transcended the transaction. They are about something bigger. There's something that's creative in them. There's something that's driving them. There's a different sense of hospitality and creativity and all that. Do you get a chance to say, actually, there's a lineage here. There's a legacy that we're tapping into that's an encouragement and inspiration for us in what we do. What does that look like? And I don't want to prescribe how it should look like. I'm just curious about, do people say, what is different about Mark Canlis? I hope not. I hope they say what's same about him. I mean, look, when I... But you're not same. You're leading the very finest restaurant in Seattle. You're innovating and creating. You've come out with six new entrepreneurial initiatives out of it. You're starting a crab shack in your restaurant. We interviewed a lot of people. You're not same. It's same. Let me tell you, sure, from the outside looking in, doesn't it look like we have all the answers? Doesn't it look like we figured it out? Doesn't it look like we were so smart? Don't believe that. That's not true. We don't know what we're doing. What, what, here's what's same. I'm the broken guy. I'm the one that needs letting in. That's what's same. All of the scriptures is God saying to each of us, I invite you in. We're the broken ones. So what you have here is just a company, I think, or at least a couple of leaders, my brother and I, our parents, who were trying to say, if that's the invitation to us, broken and unfigured out and unredeemed with all of our issues. We got so many issues. You want to talk about same, we should spend the rest of this podcast just talking about how, call my wife. You want to know how same it is. Ask her how often I fail. Tell my children, ask them if dad ever gets angry or frustrated or doesn't have the words for, it's easy to talk on a podcast or to say, look, we're building a crab shack. That's the easy stuff. What's hard is what's happening in here. I'm all messed up in here. 
I, I need help in here. I need to be redeemed in here. I, I need forgiveness. I need, so I get it from the outside. There's been so much attention. Yes, this is one of the first restaurants to shut down, one of the first cities to get it. And there's been a lot of focus on this. But, but what happens then is people say, well, that's their story. I couldn't do that. And, you know, I don't know if that's true. That's to say, you can't open a restaurant in your parking lot because maybe you don't have a parking lot. Maybe you don't have a restaurant. That's not what's happening. What's happening is I'm trying to get 110 people, all the people who live here, to say to themselves, you guys, there is something bigger to fear. There is something more important going on. And it isn't about, look, before you guys even put this on the air, this place could crash. All of us could get corona. Uh, I could give someone food poisoning. Maybe the place burns down. Three nights ago, the place across the street burnt down. There is no promise. So am I fearing going out of business? A little bit. I hope I'm fearing it less than I'm fearing doing the right thing before our Lord and Savior. Am I fearing giving COVID? Yeah, I hate being sick. I've had pneumonia four times. I don't want that thing. But I hope I'm fearing, am I fearing the headlines that I so viscerally disagree with? Or Yes, but I hope I'm fearing them less than. Does that make sense? So yeah, it's beautiful. I hope I'm not beating a dead horse, but it's from that place that you can then go out and do what we're trying to do as a company, which is to press on day by day. It says a lamp into your feet. A lamp gives you like, have you ever held a lamp in a forest? It gives you like four feet of light. The rest of the forest is dark. It's not a searchlight. It doesn't say I'm a searchlight to your, you know what I'm saying? It's a lamp, people. You don't get to see very many days ahead. And I think Corona is reminding us as business leaders, it's so tempting to try to come up with the answers for the vision and the future and to tell the whole train where we're going, you know, and to see down, we get praised as leaders for seeing into now, you know, what's guaranteed about business right now. You don't know jack about next week. Restaurants might not even be allowed to serve next week, right? So it's a beautiful reminder to bring us back to be present to what we have. We have today. We have today. What can we do? That's where Canlis is coming from. Hmm. Amen, amen, amen. Um, with great unfortunate words, we have to move towards our close. But hopefully uh, on a day that you're not opening a restaurant uh, and, and your place doesn't burn down and some of those things don't come true, uh, we will have you back. And I would love to hear how God continues to move in you and through your restaurant and in the future. But as we come to a close, one of the things we'd love to do is uh, we're always interested in how God connects our listeners to our guest through his word. And so we'd love to ask you if there's something, uh, you mentioned a few scripture verses, so it could be one of those and th- that he's working on you with. It, it could be this morning, to your point about living in today, it could be this season. Uh, it could be over a time, just a story or, or a passage. Yeah, we're going to take it down. I mean, you know, you've been personal with us pretty good, but we're going to go one layer deeper. The word that keeps sticking in me is hard-hearted and uh, keeps jumping out at me and... I wonder if this isn't a season to soften my own heart. I can't fix the pain. I'm literally looking out of a window over the entire city into Eastern Washington, over the mountains. I see all these people and I can't fix the headlines. I can't get them out of their quarantined homes. I'm not a doctor. There's no vaccine here. I have no economic ability to fix the brokenness. No one's ever going to vote for me for politics. I can't fix it. So I guess I keep taking that and I say, why? Well, what I can do is soften my own heart. Again, you read through all that Old Testament, all those stories, jeepers, like 
hard heart is not a good thing. It just never gets played. It doesn't get any good screen time, right? It's like, maybe it's good. It needs a new PR campaign, but you do not want to be hard hearted. It doesn't go well for you really ever in the Bible. So, and then I look at my own self and I'm like, wow, what am I wound up over? What am I so bitter about? Why is anger my response? And you know, my responses aren't good all the time. And so that's the thing I just wonder for me personally. And then because I'm the one on the Enneagram and I'm dying to have influence on the world. I wonder for that as a country is now a time when you got nothing else to do maybe, or where you're so hemmed in by so many constraints, is it a time that we can just say to ourselves, how do I soften? What does that look like? How do I soften my own heart? And maybe, maybe that's a good idea now. I, that's what's been hitting me almost every morning of the last 18 weeks is mm. uh, that word just kind of jumps out at me. Hey man, Mark, thank you for joining us. I, I I would tell people to go to the Crab Shack, but by the time we release this, I'm I'm worried you may be running a different strategy by then. We might be. Stay tuned. I don't think we're going to open an outdoor restaurant in the rainy Seattle winter, but uh, I don't know. We'll figure something out then. Or do I? Thanks for having me. Amazing, awesome. you, amazing to have you. Thank you for joining us. And indeed, spending indeed. Time. Grateful, Mark. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco.